This is the story of Ruth and Margaret, two women separated by 4,000 miles. One thing unites them. Ruth sits in her Dublin office and opens a letter from Margaret. Karatina, Nakuru, Kenya. Dear Ruth, my name is Margaret. I'm 37 years old and single. I have three I children. I have three children. One girl. One and girl two and boys. two boys. Most of all, I'm HIV positive and my last born is also positive. My elder daughter is 16 years old and she is expecting a baby in early May. The second born is 11 years old, as in is in class 7. My last born son is 4 years old. I work in Open Heart House. It's a centre for people living with HIV. My job title in Open Heart House is membership officer. So it sounds very official, but really I'd describe it as being a support worker for people living with HIV. I'd imagine that it's very scary to be HIV positive in Africa. Obviously, because I deal with a lot of the members from Africa, it's just it just seems to be a completely different world. I mean, in some countries, I've heard of people saying they're HIV positive and, you know, their husbands have beaten them. Their neighbours have just completely cast them away, totally ignored them. Um, families have disowned them. April afternoon. The dust hangs in the air. Margaret joins her support group, singing in the open. When Bruce was about one year old, that's when I started getting sick. Then my sister in Nairobi, she works at Madara Mental Hospital. She called me and told me to go there so that she could take me to, to a doctor. The doctor advised us to go to the laboratory. We were told to, to wait for the results in the afternoon. When we went back, they told me to go home, and then they gave the results to my sister. And then she came with them to the house. She just gave me the paper, and then the paper was just written HIV, one and two positive. I didn't feel anything. I was not shocked. My sister left me in the house and then she went. She came back in the evening at around 10 at night, very drunk. And she started abusing me. She called me so many names. And then she left. She left me all alone. Came, I told her I wanted to go back home. She told me she didn't have any money. And then she left. Hiya, how are you? Shh, calm down. It's a gorgeous little thing. He's my neighbour's dog, but um, I've kind of adopted him. <laughs> you know? 
I give him a bit of food every day and I let him in. He's nice company as well. Yeah, it was hard enough because I grew up with an alcoholic father. So that was very tough. My family wasn't really close at the time. Obviously there were a lot of fights going on and it was very stressful. And um, I was really just looking forward to getting a job so I could move out. So as soon as I got a job, I moved out and got a flat in Ratmines, you know. But now everything's completely different. We're all totally close now and really, really close. I never thought that would happen, which is great. Like, you know, especially with my sister and my mum. I think we tell each other everything, really, you know. Yeah, when I was kids, I think for two years in a row, I didn't speak to my sister, you know. But no, now we totally love each other and it's great to have that now, you know. So... Then in August, that's when I started feeling chest pains. Then I went to medical. I was admitted there. My sister was called. And I have another sister in Kitale. She's a teacher there. They were called. <coughs> My sister in Nairobi paid the hospital bill. Then we went home. So when we reached home, I don't know what they were talking about. I think they were just talking about me because they started being so aggressive with me, quarreling my children. They they do anything wrong. They were telling them, is this what you'll do when your mother dies? Do you know that your mother is going to die? Eh? Is this what you'll do when your mother dies? So it was very hard even for me. In fact, that day, that night, I remember, <laughs> I called Brenda. Then I told her, we'll run away. We don't know where we'll go, but we'll just run away from these people. Because there was too much. But then I was so sick. I had TB. Okay, from that time, my sisters left. They went back. They left me at home. From that time up to now, I've never seen them again. Ruth is now 29. Seven years ago, she faced a healthcare crisis. She had her large intestine removed. I was made redundant from my job in it was January 2006. So with the money I got from that, I decided that I wanted to buy a house because it was always my dream to have my own house. So I bought a lovely little house and... It was at the time that I was putting the deposit on and signing all the contracts. I just decided there was a new start in life. I had a new job, a new house. And because of my health history, I decided to go for a full screening for everything, um, including like STIs. So just everything. It was a big, long list. I think it cost me about, it was about 160 euro in the Well Woman Clinic. And um, they did urine samples and three swabs and a smear test and testing me for everything and I got a letter back saying that there, that all my swabs were fine so I was like phew big relief and then I read the next paragraph and I said but there's a problem with your bloods so can you please come back in so I remember I started crying and I was thinking oh no please don't put me through another operation so I rang the doctor and she said, it's nothing to be concerned about, but just come back in. There was just a problem with the the result. So I went back in and I remember it was the same time I was signing for my house. And she redid the tests. 
and told me it's nothing to worry about and we'll give you a ring. So then the next day she rang me. I was in work and she asked me to leave work straight away. And I said, I can't, I'm in work. I can come in after work. But she said, no, just leave work now. My condition became worse. You know, I didn't have money for treatment. I didn't have food. In fact, that time I was very sick, so weak. I was bedridden. Nobody was there to help me because even the neighbors didn't want anything to do with me. They used to say I'll, I'll infect them. So the only people who were taking care of me were my children. Brendan stopped going to school so as to take care of me. Then when I tried to ask anybody who could help take me to hospital, they all refused, saying that there was no need of taking me to hospital. After all, I was going to die. So they were asking who, who would take care of the bills at the hospital after I'm dead. So we just stayed in the house, and then one day Brenda just remembered this. there was a pastor around somewhere, and she went, she talked to him, and he agreed to come and take us to hospital. I couldn't even lift my head, so we left Bruce and Brian alone with no food, <laughs> nothing. We just left them, and we went, and they survived. I don't know how, but they survived. Um, obviously, I was just devastated. I was shaking from head to toe. I'll never forget. So I left work and got the dart into town and I went into her. And then she brought me up the stairs. The sign on the door said counselling room. So I sat down. She said, how are you? And I said, fine. And then I said, actually, no, I'm not. I said, please don't give me any more bad news. I've had a lifetime of bad news. And then she said, you're HIV positive. I just, it's just really, the day you're diagnosed with HIV, it's the day your life changes forever. And I just feel like crying now, (laughs) you know. Sorry. I just was actually there yesterday for the first time since I was diagnosed. It's just emotion when you think of sitting in the counselling room and, you know. We stayed at the hospital, there was nobody to visit us, so we just went home. <laughs> the day we, that day I remember when we reached home, <laughs> my boys were looking like street boys because they were so dirty, very, very dirty. In fact, the first thing Brenda did was to boil some water and wash them because they were so dirty. And then <laughs> you just look at them and you pity them. Now, we don't have money. We don't have anybody to support us. When we were at the hospital, there's a lady who was my mother's friend. She's the only person who came to visit us. So when we went home, I remembered that lady. And then I said, maybe she would help. So we decided to go to her place. We went all, all the four of us. Yeah, I remember sitting in the room like it was yesterday. Um, 
really everything was spinning. I just felt as if I wasn't in my own body, as if I was just floating up above, spinning around. And I just remember thinking, oh, I just want to die now. I, and I said it to her. I said I put everything I had into surviving the last time. And I said, I really just don't think I can do it again. And I remember I asked her three questions. I said, am I going to die? And she said, no. And I asked her, how did I get it? And she said she didn't know. And then I asked her, could I have kids? And she said, yeah. So I didn't even cry. I just sat there just totally in a daze, didn't know what to do. Obviously, she wouldn't let me leave unless someone was there to meet me. So we rang my sister and straight away she left work. And of course, she was in bits crying her eyes out. So she came into town and picked me up. And it was a lovely summer's day. It was really, really hot and sunny out. It was August 17th, 2005. And I remember I left and I just walked around town for about half an hour. Just really, I didn't know what to do. I just felt totally lost. And I was walking over um, the Haypenny Bridge. And I got to the end of the bridge and I remember there was a truck coming really fast down the road. And I was thinking, right, that's it now. I'm just going to jump out in front of it. I'm just done, done with everything. How are you? I'm very fine. Mary is a health worker with the Love and Hope Centre. She visits Margaret every week. Maggie, hey, how is life? Life is okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, we are doing fine. Uh -huh. Yes. Brenda told me you had a, a light headache. So oh, that's yeah. why I came to see you. Okay. Mm. Yes, I have slight headache sometimes. So when we went to her place, I think she was scared. She thought I would die in her house. So she's the one who went to love and hope. And then she brought them. They, they didn't talk to me because I didn't want to go back to Moronyo because life there was very difficult and the stigma. So I just didn't want to go back there. But when Love and Hope talked to me, we went back home. And they started now coming to, to Moronyo to visit us. And we were so happy because at, at least we found somebody, people who really loved us and who really cared for us. Because when they came, they used to bring us food, which we didn't have. And then they used to bring me medicine. They used to come after every two weeks. And we were, sometimes we used to count the days when they would come. So you will take it? per day, only one tablet mm. in the morning mm. but you take plenty of water plenty. it's the rice it took me oh, years and years to learn how to cook rice properly I just couldn't do it but working in an open heart house because of the meals program I get either lunch or dinner every day so and you know it's kind of a starter main course and dessert so I don't really feel like eating well, well when I come home I'd have something small like a bit of fruit and cheese and crackers or something 
Irish glass line. Years ago, I was asked if I'd write a book about what it's like to live with ulcerative colitis. And I started writing it, but then I just stopped one day because I was thinking, where does it all end? Like, there's no real ending to it. So I was sitting in the car with her and I hadn't told her what was wrong with me, but I said, I have the ending to my book now. I said, I know where it all ends now. And I think I just scared the life out of her. I feel so bad about it now, but she was petrified. And I'm sure she was thinking cancer as well. So we just went to the pub, had a pint, and then I said to her I'm HIV positive, and she just lost it totally, like just shaking from head to toe, crying. And but the worst thing was thinking about telling my mother, you know. So we just kind of sat there and kind of got ourselves together, and then hopped in the car and went to my mum's house. And my mum was all happy and jolly as normal, you know, and. I walked in and I said to her, can I talk to you? And we sat on the edge of the bed. I remember I touched her hand and I told her I'm HIV positive and I'm so sorry. She said, well, it's just another disease we're going to have to learn about and learn how to cope with it and what to do. I honestly, I don't think I'd still be alive now if I didn't have them because they know me so well and... When I was going through a really bad time, when I was just diagnosed, I just I didn't know what to do. And, you know, they'd just come up and get me, bundle me up in the car and bring me down to their house and just stay with me for a few days until I snapped out of it. You know, they were always there for me, like, even times when I snapped and threw things and just hurled abuse at everyone, they understood, because you always hurt the people closest to you. And then myself and my family made a decision not to tell my dad because of his drinking. So we just decided just to protect him, really, we wouldn't tell him. So I'd say my number one support is my sister, without a doubt. Um, there you go. I was so hurt. Even now I'm still hurt because they've never even bothered to know what happened to me, where I am, what happened to my children. They don't care. And it's not that they don't have the money. They don't even care to know what, how I live, how I stay. So it's, it's, I feel so hurt because I wonder, sometimes I really wonder, what wrong did I do? If I got it from somebody, it's not my. It wasn't my wish. I didn't know. Just like them, they would also get it. Maybe they even have it, and they don't know. But they really hate me. When they see me, they just see problems, because they know I'm financially unstable. So when they see me, they just know I'm going. Either I'm where I want. I'll ask for money. Something like that. So I think that's why they they keep off. Yeah. Hi Elizabeth. Hi Rosa. 
Come on in and grab Thanks. I'll just bring you into reception. You can sign in. Great. I was so angry because I knew I'd always been extra cautious. I Every boyfriend I had, I asked them their history, if they had anything. Never touched drugs in my life. You know, I was little Miss Healthy. Went to the gym three times a week, you know. Like, I just... I don't know if you want to say there's an average case of HIV, but in most people's eyes, I wasn't the average case of HIV. So I was, I was very, very angry and... I just really wanted to wanted to know how did I contract it and at the start a lot of people thought it was a blood transfusion that I had years ago when I had colitis. So the blood was tested and that came back negative. So the only thing I could think of was a boyfriend I had nine years ago because I remember when I was with him I got a very bad case of cystitis. And I'll never forget it because I was actually sobbing, crying with the pain at night. And I remember I went into my mum and I told her I just couldn't cope with it. And she was saying, oh, it's just cystitis, most women get it, you'll be fine. So I took little sachets of powdery stuff and yeah, after about a week it went. And I was, I was totally fine after that. But I just remembered that vividly. And I also knew that my ex-boyfriend had been locked up in Mount Joy about maybe about six or seven years before I met him. And he was honest with me about that from the start. So I really respected him for that. And I said, well, you know, we've all done things in our past we regret. So I stayed with him and we worked through it. And yeah, I did. I was in love with him for the year I was with him. For years for years and years, it was as if I carried something with me about him. Because it was a very um, a very abusive relationship. Like he never he never physically hit me. But it was more emotionally abusive, you know, always trying to put me down um, just constantly insulting me. And I just carried that with me for years and years. And I always wondered why I couldn't get rid of it. And then I think when I was diagnosed, I just knew that it was him. The first person who counseled me told me if I want to live positively, I should never ever think about who gave it to me. Yeah. What I should know is that I have it and how I live with it. That's all. Yeah. But sometimes, like when I was tested and I found I was positive, I felt so bad because. Bruce's father, I think I infected him. That's what I think. But I don't know if he agreed to go for a test. Because I tried talking to him to go, but I don't know if he agreed. So, But I usually tell God to forgive me. If I'm the one who infected him, I didn't know. Because that's, that's the last thing I would do. Yeah.
I've tried to trace them now and I can't find them anywhere. I came up with an address and I wrote to it, but no one wrote back to me. So I'm not really too sure what to do now. I don't. I was thinking about just calling into the house, but I don't want to be upsetting family members at the same time. So I need to kind of think about that. But I would like some closure on it and just find out, is he alive or dead? And did he know if he had it or just really find out, find out the whole story and then move on from it. What I want to ask you, mm. because I heard you, you said you felt bad mm. about uh, Bruce's father. Mm. How did you know he, you were the one who infected I him? knew it because mm. what I've learned about the virus, mm -hmm. it doesn't take one year mm. to show. And when I got Bruce, when he was one year old, I was already sick. I was already down with AIDS. Mm. So it must have been me. Because him, he was, he was brought up in church, I think. Mm -hmm. And, okay, me, I would say, okay, I was sexually active before that. Okay. But him... I'd okay, I would say he wasn't. Mm. Even if he was not that much. Okay. So sometimes I feel maybe it's me. What about the Brian's father? You have met him? Yeah. He died. He died? Yeah. Okay. He died when Brian was seven. Seven years old. Yeah. But he died about uh, HIV AIDS or no, normal No, I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. I contacted my ex-boyfriends, which was very hard, of course. That was really hard. It was heartbreaking. And they were tested. The majority of them, for different reasons, had been tested anyway along the course of whatever amount of years, and they were fine. There was one that I emailed. Um, I kept ringing him, and he wouldn't answer the phone, so finally I had to do it through email. And... I just told him and I said, please be tested. And if you have anything, let me know. And he never let me know. So I presume he's fine. Um, there's another one that I couldn't get in touch with because I couldn't. I had a number for him, but he must have changed numbers. So I knew where he worked. So I went to his job and I found him. And he wasn't too happy to see me because he's in a long-term relationship now and it looked a bit bad, me turning up out of the blue. So I explained the situation to him. And I just remember it was the only kind of really bad reaction I got. He, he just It's not what he said, but it's just the way he looked at me. It was as if, how dare you put me at risk? When we were together, we both told each other we didn't have anything. But at the end of the day, neither of us had actually been tested. So how do you know? You really can't tell from the look of someone. You know, you can get whatever gorgeous-looking businessman, so respectful-looking, and you really just you just don't know. You can't say to someone, I don't have an STI unless you've actually got a bit of paper to prove it. But yeah, he, he really, really hurt me, but I, I understand, though, it was a big shock for him. You know, he'd probably never heard anything about HIV. And I do see where he's coming from. If the roles were reversed, yeah, I'd be petrified. So that's the one thing, at least I know I never passed it to anyone.
I even stopped going to church. And maybe when I sit next to somebody, she looks around, she sees it's me. You see, they start moving. Because I was feeling, okay, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm forcing myself to them. And yet they are still rejecting me. Even in school, my children had a rough time. Because they would even say it in their eyes. Eh? Don't, one would warn the other, don't touch anything from Brenda. Because you, you know they are sick, they have HIV and... You know they don't have. They don't know even about being HIV positive and having AIDS. So they just say, you know, they have AIDS, all of them. I feel so bad. I rarely sleep because it disturbs me the whole night, and I sometimes pity my children. Now I feel. I feel so bad. Sometimes I blame myself because I say maybe if I was still working, I could cater for their needs. Even when Brenda became pregnant, I used to blame myself. If I didn't get sick, she couldn't have stopped going to school. And I blame myself for most of the things that happened to them. Because yeah. even Bruce, I feel I'm the, I'll, I'll be the cause of his problems. Yeah. That's what makes me feel so bad. Now looking back, I realise, well, me buying this house saved my life. Because there's no way... I think, like, the fact that I spent so long in hospital, having operation after operation and blood tests all the time, and, you know, it was just put down to being colitis or whatever, just different things. And, um, you know, a HIV test was never even suggested to me. It was only that I just decided to do it myself, but... I, I just know that there's no way, because even when I got shingles, I don't think any doctor would have suggested that I get a HIV test. And I would have been treated for maybe different infections, but I never would have received HIV treatment. So I do kind of think in ways I was lucky enough to save my own life by buying this house. So now this house really represents good to me. Whereas when I first bought it, I thought it kind of represent bad because I'd been diagnosed with a serious illness but now I realise I can you know live really as long as I want to live hopefully so it is a good thing yeah I have a lot of different things I have my fibre optic lamp here and then I have the blue lampshade with a picture of a sun on it just to brighten up the, the whole room and I just painted it a lovely blue colour and then I just have all my little fairies kind of scattered around the around the room Normally, even whenever I go away on holidays, I try and buy a new fairy and bring it back. On my fridge, yeah, another fairy, of course. <laughs> um, the Aran Islands, a little fridge magnet. I'm completely obsessed with the Aran Islands. I really love having my own space, especially in the summertime. I love it here. 
Um, I love just sitting out in the back garden with a glass of wine and, you know, I have my paddling pool and I bring it out and just, you know, just relax in the summertime. It's brilliant. So it's important, I think, to have your own space. Can we see? Okay. Yesu ali yesu lubi ame fufuka yuishi milele milele o mikono ni na miguni pake alama kuba zamisho mare uso uso angara kama juwa macho kama miale ya moto mavazi o mavazi ya keme upe yangaza. My children were so good. They just told me, Mom, don't worry. You are not going to die. In fact, Brenda told me, you won't die before you see my baby. <laughs> That's what she told me. And even Bruce, he used to come and he looks at me, tells me, no, Mom, you'll get well. So with Brenda, you know, we are very free. Because I don't have any other friend. So any problem I have, we share. Any problem she has, it's only me. There was nobody else I knew who was HIV positive, who I would go and we talk and discuss. But when he, when I'm here, there are so many. There are so many who are like me. Okay, and most of them share the same experience of rejection and stigma. So I feel I'm, at least here I'm a bit okay. And when I came here, I also, I even told the, the landlord of this place, because I used to hear that there are some landlords, when they learn that you are positive, they just tell you to go, to go out. So I told him, and he told me there's no problem. I, he knows more about the disease, so there's no problem. So I find it, at least here, there are some people who understand me and who know who who care and so we share with the rest and i feel i feel okay yeah what really made me feel bad was my boy because that time he was about a one year old and he had breastfed for all that time so i just knew maybe he's also infected and he was a very handsome boy and we really loved him in fact, he's our joy. So I just imagined, yeah? I just imagined, what if he is positive and he goes through that hard time? And I really prayed. I, I didn't pray for myself. I was just praying for him. And God answered my prayers, I think, because he's never been sick. Never. Yeah? I just imagined. I wouldn't say I have no guilt because I do. I feel very guilty for telling my ex-boyfriends I didn't have anything. I was actually single at the time when I was diagnosed. I'm glad of that. I would have, it would have been awful now to have to tell a partner. But um, of course, like one of the first things that came into my mind was I'll never have a boyfriend again. No man is going to want me. I didn't definitely didn't want a man, you know, Um but then very slowly, I suppose, I started thinking, well, yeah, I would eventually like a boyfriend again. And there was a guy that I'd met in Portugal before I knew that I'd HIV. And 
I was meant to meet him, but in the meantime I was diagnosed, so I didn't go to meet him. And then eventually he ended up in Ireland, so I met him and we got on great. And then he was going back home. So at the airport, I decided, right, well, this is the perfect time to tell him because if he reacts badly, he can hop on a plane. And I really didn't want my first time telling a bloke to be a bad experience because I was afraid. So my hands were shaking. I was like really, really scared. But I told him the truth and he was fine about it. He said he kind of had a feeling that there might be something wrong health wise. So he hopped on the plane. I was still thinking, oh, I'll never hear from him again. But he rang me that night and then we spent eight months together. And in the end, the relationship broke up. I, I suppose I can't really blame it fully on that. It was partly. I first came to terms with being HIV positive when I went to the International AIDS Conference in Toronto in August 2006. It was actually exactly a year after I was diagnosed in Toronto, we had to focus on writing articles all around stigma. And I was totally lost because I'd never come across it. Everyone had been brilliant with me. And I'd heard a few hurtful comments, but nothing like that upset me too much. But there was this man selling um, hot dogs. And he came over to me and he started chatting me up. And I had a questionnaire about HIV that I was meant to interview attendees of the conference so I decided to ask him the questions and he said to me that he'd never touch a woman with AIDS or HIV. They were all sluts. He'd never used a condom in his life, never would because it would make him less of a man. I'm giving a very censored version of what he said to me. but um, And then he said to me, what about you? Would you ever touch anyone with HIV? And I said, well, I have. My ex-boyfriend had HIV and I'm HIV positive too. And straight away he touched my arm, yet he, he just told me that he'd never touch a woman with HIV. And I said it to him, I said, you're after saying you'd never touch a woman with HIV. And he looked me up and down and he said, well, I didn't know someone like you could have it. I don't like the way people automatically think, oh, it's the gay guy over there who has HIV or it's the drug user over there. It could be, you know, the businesswoman sitting there in a suit who has HIV. It could be any, any one of us. I think slowly now people are starting to become more aware of that.